wanted you to see that because God is the source of life and what we need to be able to understand very clearly here is the powerful way in which God works in life biologically, spiritually, eternally. Nine months in four minutes for you as you ponder the significance of life within the womb. Now, what we want to do on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is to take a, a perspective from the Genesis account, because in the book of Genesis, you and I are given a blueprint for life. Here we find how in our current culture, which seems to be globally a culture of death, as you watch what's happening in Europe, happening in the Middle East, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and so on, and compare it to the story of life that is produced within the confines of God's word, what we need to be able to do is to articulate God's perspective with regard to life itself. And so, as we have conflicting cultures before us, we want God's word to guide us. And so, beginning with Genesis chapter 2, I'd like to begin with verse 4 and read down through verse 9. And here we find these words, that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's very powerful. So what I want to do now is to allow these verses to be a springboard through the rest of this chapter to give us an understanding as to how to approach the ethical, moral dilemmas of today and guided by the Word of God. And as we do so, let's look to God and pray. Now, my Father, in all of these services this morning, we want your heartbeat. We want the divine breath to come upon us. We want to be inspired by your word, knowing that you were the one who inspired the word. We want to be able to understand life. You are the creator and the sustainer of life. We want to understand the relationship between life and death. We do so in the historic realities of the one who conquered death, Jesus Christ. As we look at biological life, we have to also understand the realm of eternal life found not merely in creation, but new creation, etc. 
experience with you through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. So with all these matters percolating in our minds, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wheels. Again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and him only. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Shemitah Nisima, his biographer tells us, was born in February of 1843. He was born into a Shinto family in Japan. And he often went to the temple, and as he did so, he would offer sacrifices to the idols that would be his lifelong guardian. But when he was in his teens, he was chosen by a prince in the land, a attend a military school where he had the opportunity to study and later teach Chinese. And while I was there, he came upon a copy of a Chinese Bible. He opened up the Bible, and as he opened it up, he did what we would naturally do, turn to the first page. And the most remarkable statement he had ever found in all of his reading was positioned in that first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens on the earth. As Shemada continued to examine carefully the word of God, he began to connect the dots and see not only the issue of creation, but the necessity of new creation in Christ put his faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and as his Savior, would eventually come to the U.S. to study and then return to begin and develop and then oversee a Christian college in Kyoto where over 100 graduates became pastors despite the heavy opposition from the Japanese authorities all because this was an individual who was gripped by the reality that we have a sovereign God who is the creator of life, biological and eternal. What I want to do in these minutes together with you is to get together the sum total of all aspects of life in a short period of time and do so under the auspices of understanding the sovereignty of God that's found here in these verses. And as we on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday plunge into these verses, I want to join with you and to draw out three significant evidences of God's sovereignty that's found here, and hopefully we're better equipped to address the ethical issues facing us regionally, nationally, and globally all in a very practical way, using God's word as our blueprint. Let's dig in. I want you to notice that the first evidence of God's sovereignty is found in verses 4 through 9. That our Lord God's sovereignty is evident in the creation of human life. Now, what you will find are parallel accounts of creation's story in chapter 1 and chapter 2. They're meant to be complementary of one another, not contradictory to one another. 
God gives you the panoramic view in chapter 1, and then God gives a very detailed, specific view in chapter 2. In verse 4 of the second chapter, you and I will notice in the ESV that it says these are the generations, or in other versions, these are the accounts of, the account of a Hebrew phrase which is utilized ten times throughout the course of the book of Genesis to be able to make a another statement of something new unfolding in his historic development of this world. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. What I'm going to want you to notice in this study with me this morning is that while in chapter 1, our sovereign one is referenced as God, Elohim, all-powerful, in chapter 2, Repeatedly, you are going to phrase, Lord, find Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And that carries with it the idea of the relational, all-powerful, sovereign God. Now, what God is doing with the panoramic view in chapter 1 is giving us the understanding of his power overseeing creation. But in chapter 2, the addition of the phrasing, Lord God, gives us the understanding of the intimate relationship this sovereign, powerful God as to the creation in general and to his people in particular. Now, having said that, you're going to see Lord God repeatedly emerge in these verses. In verse 5, we're informed when no bush of the field was yet in the land. That's a negation. A negation. This has to do with that which is non-seed-bearing. No small plant of the field had yet sprung up. The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground. Now notice the four negations here. No bush, no plant, no rain, no men. At this point, the Lord God is sovereignly superintending an absence in verse 5 to create the dynamic of a presence now as you move in to verse 7. But even before that dynamic occurs, notice carefully in verse 6, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now I was struck by the fact that though rain was not coming down from the heavens, The Hebrew word here for a mist was also that of dew, which produces a fog, was arising from the land, and so that was what was producing moisture for the land at this point. H2O, operative. So here now God, Lord God, is sovereignly superintending four negations that I've drawn out for you, allowing at the same time for the ground to be producing this moisture, and this moisture was arising, cultivating this dew, this fog that was unfolding across the landscape. Now, God superintends the absence, and he produces the absence before he yields the presence. And he's doing so intentionally because humanity is going to be his crowning achievement at this moment. Notice verse 7. 
than the Lord God. Significant. Yahweh Elohim formed the man of dust from the ground. Notice the phrasing. The Lord God. Not God, the Lord God. So he is relationally involved, covenantally involved in the Edenic moment here. And he formed. The Hebrew word formed was used elsewhere in your Old Testament to describe the working of a potter with his clay. This is a figurative imagery at this point. It's to allow for you and me to view God as the great artisan, the great craftsman, the ultimate artist, who not only can paint this global landscape of the clouds and the sun, the moon and the stars, but also using the imagery of pottery, now with his gifted craftsman skills, brings this one to life. The Lord God formed, you see. Word is used again in Second Samuel seventeen twenty-eight. He's shaping. He is shaping this man of dust from the ground. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for man, the Hebrew word is Adam, and the word for ground is Adama. And so, you could say Adam is well grounded, couldn't you? The writer wants us to be able to make connections of what God is doing at this point. But what I want you to see is that he does not emerge from the ground absence of Yahweh Elohim, but rather the contrary. He is formed because Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, takes initiative at this point. And so the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He is bringing life from that which is non-life, making animate that which is inanimate. God, then, is the source of life. And I find this fascinating that God is using himself here as the source without dependent upon any other means than him. All other people throughout all of history would find that their parents are the means for bringing, being brought into this world, while God is the source. You just saw that video. In the culture of abortion, though, What happens is that people remove God as the source, make the parent as the source, and don't distinguish the source from the means, creating idolatry, so to speak, out of the parenthood and giving him, her, and the abortionist the right then to determine when to end life. They fail to distinguish means and source, remove God as source, making themselves its source, rather than understanding what God has already dictated in the first chapter, verse 28, when God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, 
and fill the earth. Now, having said that, what we need to do now is to build a bridge between your first chapter, the panoramic view of creation, Elohim, and the second chapter, Yahweh Elohim, and notice in particular now verses 26 and 27, which should appear on the screen. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, I want you to notice the word us. And notice furthermore the word our. Already you are being given a foretaste for the idea of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That there's a community of oneness within the Godhead. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, not emerged from, not spiritually identified with, but rather dominion over. This is an ecological slash environmental statement for our biology students here this morning. And over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, notice the singular in the next verse. And God created man in his own image. And you said, well, Gary, the previous verse said us, our. Now it says his. And what I want you to see here is that he not only is speaking of the three, he's speaking of the one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three, verse 26, in the one, him. Verse 27, this is powerful. You're already at the earliest stage being given an introduction to the three-in-one principle here in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, not in the image of the environment, not in the image of the biological realm of that which uh, the fish, of the sea, the birds, the heavens, the livestock, and so on, but in the image of God, which is critically important here in our cultural abortion debate. He created him. Parents did not. Male and female, he created them. Here you already see that God is involved in the the distinguishing of the sexes. Now, I want to focus our attention at this point on the word image. God created man in his own image. Ask yourself the question, where else does this occur in Genesis? And the answer is in chapter 9, verse 6. Look what appears on the screen. Subsequent to the fall of humanity, in chapter 9, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, For God made man in his own image. So now what God is doing, even with the Genesis account, is that he's pulling together some of the modern-day ethical dilemmas, such as the matter of abortion and also the matter of capital punishment. And what you have to do in our culture is to pull all these strands together with a thorough understanding of what does it mean to have been created in the image of God. It's an important issue that believers have got to be able to address. I've had to deal with it practically in the last few days. 
Let me show you how practically we can work with this. Wednesday night after my time with our, the chairman of our deacon board, I sat down at my kitchen table around 10 o'clock at night and the phone rang, which is not unusual at all nights, in all hours of the night. But my wife picked up and it was Marianne, my sister from Holland, Michigan, calling. And so I got on the phone with Marianne and she and I said, well, how's dad? He's got stage four cancer. How's mom? And so on. And she said, well, Gary, I'd like to talk with you about Carol Ann. I've told you about Carol. Three years age and developmental abilities, though 40-some years of age chronologically. Down syndrome child. Tremendous capacity to love people, but very limited in the scope of her abilities. Marianne says, Gary, she's taken a downward turn. And I'm being faced with some dilemmas, and because you're the, at the forefront of the advanced directives, we need to talk this through. I'm praying as she speaks, which I think is always wise when you get a phone call. Uh, take 10 seconds to pray as the person begins to talk with you. And my mind is racing back over my times in September, October, and November with the medical-slash-legal community as we set the advanced directives in place for my parents and for Carol and what my role and responsibility, what Marianne's role and responsibilities would be, and so on, and the triggers getting pulled here. And she said, well, she is declining, and what I've done is I've contacted a nurse. She has been brought in. We cannot hear any sounds within the protruded stomach, and the limbs are swelling. What should we do, Gary? And so I begin to map out what I understand of medicine. It's my background. And so as I lay things out, uh, I begin to lay out a process, and I say, I think it is time to contact a hospice nurse, bring her in, let her do a thorough evaluation, make recommendations. We will listen carefully. She does. The nurse then contacts hospice doctor. He comes in, and before I can blink my eyes, within 24 hours, the hospital bed's being rolled into the house. I thought it would be for my father, not for my sister. And so now, I'm processing all of this, but I go back in my mind to the fact that when I sat with the legal and the medical community in Holland, Michigan, through the fall, on my day off, what I tried to do with my sister Marianne was to communicate the idea that Carol was made in the image of God. What I knew was that when we are dealing with end-of-life matters, you are dealing with matters of authority and accountability. Who has the say of life and what process should be involved in the say? God is the source of life. Carol Ann is made in the image of God. And so now, the legal and the medical community is accountable to the authority. My mind now, on Wednesday night, is stretching out over all the issues happening nationally, where in the great abortion debate, we've got an issue of authority against accountability, where just as people are assuming you remove God as the source of life, make the parent the source of life, then the abortionist has authority over life and death matters. So likewise, in this entire discussion here, what we need to understand 
is that in the advanced directives, we're dealing with the image of God, so the legal realm and the medical realm sat at the table as we talked about the image of God and spelled out for us them our views of life and death matters, signed documents, and then made it very clear that we wanted sense that they understand that we view the fact that there is a law above the law. That they are means, but they are not the source of both beginning and endings of things. So we talked about God, and I shared the good news of Jesus Christ with them around the table. And they were gracious enough to listen intently. Now you and I are given opportunities in life's dilemmas, you see, to bring in, even in our most difficult moments, such as I had to do in Holland, Michigan, and on Wednesday night and so on, with how to be able to communicate truth in this culture of disbelief, as the professor of Yale, Stephen Carter, has written of. And what we want to do is to get people to think and to realize that God is the source of life. The parent is the means of life. That in the Roe v. Wade situation of 1973, January 22nd of that year, where in the 72 ruling in favor of abortion, we have to understand at that moment what we see documented was that there's a statement made with regard to who, in essence, is being viewed as having authority over life. Now this is incredibly significant because in that culture shift, what we see is a shift away then from the matter of God having authority. Have you seen historically the connection between the promotion of abortion through the years and the increased involvement of of, uh, evolutionary thought process? Remove the creator, and now we become the creators. We have then authority, and we have the answer to the says who question, and we answer says me, rather than God answering that it says he. So we're not arguing here for traditional values. We're arguing for original values. What we're arguing for is that in the conflictedness of the legal and the moral, that not all which is legal is moral. And when you and I examined very carefully that video, we were not examining potential life. We were examining life with potential. And when you and I are involved in conversations where they say, well, you're a Christian, you don't have the right to legislate morality, the natural question is to respond with, but whose morality shall we legislate? These are critical questions. These are the issues that we face. And who has ultimate say over sanctity of life and matters of the quality of life? 
And it's Philip Johnson and his outstanding writings with regard to Darwinism has put it as a fellow believer. We must make sure that people understand that the real debate is between two creation narratives. Between one that says in the beginning were particles and one that says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and all things were made through him. So we've got to understand here that the debate is not a clash between science and religion. Science is my background. It's not, furthermore, a clash between reason and faith. In reality, it's a clash between two religions, Christianity and naturalism. So if you've ever asked the question, how do you reconcile the scriptures with science, your response ought to be, I see no need to reconcile two good friends. Because scriptures and real science are both inspired by the sovereign God. So for our students here in this growing congregation, some of the questions they could pose would be questions such as Chuck Colson, our brother in the Lord who's now with the Lord, posed for students. Questions such as, what fossil record is there of any transitional fossils indicating that one order evolved into another order? Another question. Is there any evidence of an order that was one time a different order? Another question. How do we reconcile the second law of thermodynamics with the universe as we know it? If the universe is indeed winding down, does that does not that presuppose that sometime and by some means it was being wound up? And by what means? And for those that are not scientifically oriented but are globally aware, you could then pose the question in the classrooms, in the hallways, or in the workplace, if evolutionary process means that we are becoming better and better, how do you explain ISIS? How do you explain what just happened in Paris? How do you explain all these things? Should we be getting morally better then? Are we being genetically coded that way then? Because all these things have to be understood in relationship to the one who Genesis describes as the Lord God. And I love what Dr. Paul Brand wrote. I could fill a room with volumes of surgical textbooks that describe operations people have devised for the human hand. Different ways to rearrange the tendons, muscles, and joints thousands of operations. But I don't know of a single operation anyone has devised that has succeeded in improving a normal hand. It's beautiful. All the techniques are to correct the deviance. The one hand and a hundred that is not functioning as God designed. There is no way to improve on the hand he gave us. So I concur with the scientist Isaac Newton who once said, quote, in the absence of any other proof, The thumb alone 
would convince me of God's existence. This is powerful. Now, I'm trying to pull together with you as a fellow believer the moral, the legal, the scientific, the political, all these factors. You have to bear this in mind, even politically. When you go to the polls in 2016 to vote, the one you will be voting for will be the one recommending justices to the Supreme Court as you examine the ages of the justices currently. What is their worldview? And do they see the image of God in this nation and the law above the law and how the moral law shapes the national law and how to understand all of this in the complexities of this fallen world? Look at verses 8 to 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. There's that word again, the craftsmanship. Now he's got a particular environment for all of our environmentalist friends here. God is the great environmentalist. And out of the ground, the Lord God made up to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. But I want to see the precursors to life's moral dilemmas. There in verse 9, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's there as well. Now, as God is involved in this creative work here, we've seen what takes place prior to the forming in verses 4 through 6. We see here statements regarding in the forming of man in verse 7. And furthermore, we are spotting environmentally what's taking place upon the forming of man in verse 8 and 9. If you're like me, my mind goes back to a book that the Lehigh University professor of biochemistry, Michael Behe, wrote in Darwin's Black Box. And he used this homey illustration we've sometimes referred to regarding irreducible complexity pertaining to a mousetrap. A mousetrap can't be assembled gradually, he points out. You cannot start with a wooden platform and catch a few mice. Add a spring, catch a few more mice. Add a hammer and a few more. Each addition making the mousetrap function better. No. To even start catching mice, all the parts must be assembled from the outset. The mousetrap does not work until all its parts are present and working together. And so, if a student approaches me with a term paper and wants to talk about this, I remind them that God created a mature environment so that Adam was not created as an infant, already mature, and introduced as a mature man into a mature environment. The mousetrap is operative, is what I'm saying here. We've got irreducible complexity on our hands here. And we need to be able to explain these things to our students and communicate these things in this culture. And where there's this confusion of authority and accountability, where God has been removed as the source, and now the means has become the source in the legal landscape, we carry on a cultural conversation 
we introduce a biblical conversation and we draw them to the people who need to understand in the scriptures which communicate that not only is God involved in creation, God is involved in new creation and conquered death by raising Jesus on the third day. You see. Now, we're weaving together legal, scientific, and a host of things in a short period of time. But we've got to do that in this confusing time period in which we live. Now, out of all this, what I want to do is to draw out for us a second significant evidence, and I've got to put the, the pedal to the metal here. And so look carefully at verse 10 through 17, but in particular now, what I'm going to be doing is looking at 15 through 17. And the second evidence is this, that our Lord God's sovereignty is evident in the establishment of human freedoms. In verse 15, the Lord God, he's personally involved and powerfully superintending. He took the man, Adam, put him in the garden, not in the desert, in the garden of Eden. The Hebrew word Eden means literally to bring pleasure. But notice here you have a work ethic that is instituted in history prior to the fall. So when you people see people that are trying to find ways of avoiding work and looking somehow, some way for spiritual perspective, take them to God's institution of work habits prior to the fall and notice the responsibilities tied to the freedoms. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So we've got responsibility tied to rights. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, quote, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That is tremendous freedom. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day of, that you eat of it you shall surely die. Notice the surely's. But what stands out to me is that there is a wide range of freedoms. And there is a singular prohibition. That one tree you should not eat of. All these other trees you have the privilege and the freedom to eat of. Now, having given Adam the opportunity, the right combined with responsibility in this pre-fall condition to develop a work ethic, he would have been working around all the various trees. He would have been cultivating them. He would have seen the various trees to eat from. He had the opportunity to see the wide range of God's creation. But there will be, through a satanic influence in the next chapter, this, this emphasis upon fixating upon the prohibition and cultivating in the mindset of Adam and Eve that God is some kind of cosmic killjoy that keeps us from total freedom. Now, I take that back then to all the bumper stickers I've seen in this nation over the course of time pertaining to freedom, freedom of choice, and so on. And notice, however, you have a God of great freedoms. He gives freedom, and that God, tremendous freedom. There is simply a single negation, a single prohibition, but the evil one reminded and focused the eyesets of Adam and Eve upon the single prohibition and in essence was saying to them, do you see how limiting your God is, how restrictive your God is? He's taken freedom from you. And that tree became an obsession. 
What are your obsessions? What are the negations? What are the prohibitions that you want authority over and freedom with? Now, do you see the ethical issues here of modern culture? What do we do? Well, I think what I might do is I've sometimes done, I did this on my old radio program, I tied together Martin Luther King holiday with Roe v. Wade, January 22nd, 73. And now that a movie has come out on Selma, you and I have an added opportunity if people are, are prone to be aware culturally of what's happening even in the movies, is that as you and I know, Martin Luther King, as he was making his march for freedom, was incarcerated in a Birmingham jail. And while there, he penned on toilet paper, which was then taken out of that jail, what are known as the Birmingham jail letters. And what he wrote about was answering this question, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? And Dr. King went on to say, as he wrote, the answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I'm saying to myself, I've got something to work with here if people go to the movies. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. And now my mind goes to Roe v. Wade. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Now I go back to Selma, and as people take Monday off, in some cases, Martin Luther King asked, now, what is the difference between the two? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is out of harmony with the moral law rooted in God's creation. An unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law, but in humanity itself. And I go to Roe v. Wade, and I connect Monday with what happens later on this week as there's a march toward D.C., and I say, I've got something to work with here. To talk in the hallways and to carry on conversations on Facebook and so on with regard to the way in which people are viewing this whole issue of life and death today and continuously asking, and why is ISIS around? if we are evolutionarily speaking, on a path of growth and maturation. This is the sort of stuff that Christians need to be bringing in to the conversations of this world. Fooey, I've got three minutes left. Okay. My third evidence. Our Lord God's sovereignty is evident in the issues of human sexuality. And when I see the confusion in our culture, even with same-sex marriage, I see the connection with the issue of abortion and the connection with regard to evolution. And all these matters are addressed, you see, in the opening chapters of the cultural mandate found in the Genesis account. And so in verse 18, here's still the Lord God, and he said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now, the word fit in the Hebrew carries with the idea of correspondence to. Now, to show Adam that there was no natural correspondence, he, as a biology teacher, gives gives Adam then a homework assignment. 
God does. There's every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and they're brought, he brought them to the man to see what he, Adam, would call them. He's going to categorize the species. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for corresponding to him. There's this sense of void. I believe in our culture there's this sense of void due to the shattered image of God in our midst. But bring it home. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He is history's first anesthesiologist. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. Now notice the word man is in woman, you see. Brought her to the man. God is, throughout this account, initiating, initiating. And then the man says in response to this divine initiative, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And what I find here is not an argument for traditional values pertaining to marriage, but original values as pertaining to marriage. Because the original values were established before the fall, traditional values subsequent to the fall. And so in the same-sex marriage debate of today, I see a connection with abortion, euthanasia, evolution, all these other things. We've gotten away from the blueprint of ethics. And what God is doing here is saying, I am the one who is the originator of marriage, not the government, not the culture. I distinguish people, male and female. He brings correspondence, and can I even say anatomically? And so here we find the first poetic response to a scientific statement. This is our last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. And now God then, the originator of the marital institution, Prior to the fall, not subsequent to the fall, government does not initiate it. God does, distinguishes. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And God then has instituted a nucleus of male-female within the institution of the marriage family, and out of that, they would bring children into this world, and now we distinguish between source and means, and we've got an ethic to be able to work with through all of this, you see. You see how all this comes together? And what we are facing in this culture of confusion, you've got truth to work with, and even related in the midst of all that goes on, whether it be ISIS or the movie Selma or whatever. Tie it together. There's a man named Shemetta. You would think that nobody could reach him with the gospel. But a Chinese Bible is open to page one. He reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
and he became a new creation in Christ. And that's what you want to do and I want to do. Not merely win a debate, but rather by the working of the Holy Spirit, engage ourselves relationally to introduce people to the one who's not only a creator, but a new creation, God, who sent his son to die for our sins, who entered this world in the womb of a woman and was sovereignly brought to that cross to die for our sins. And now you've connected creation with new creation. Let's stand together. We've got to engage the culture, but we can't only observe it. We've got to enter into it, dialogue with it, communicate truth within the midst of all that goes on, taking all these various strands and pulling them together and say, if there's anything we have in common with all this in this blueprint, we are dealing with the Lord God, the Sovereign One. So, Father, minister to hearts. Help us to take these truths and apply them to the issues of the hour. We'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.